Could we take just one more moment and uh, pray together briefly? Father in heaven, thank you that what we have opened before us is the Word of God. We're grateful that you have not left us to our own devices. We're grateful that we're not left to our own thoughts and ideas, but we have before us the very Word of the living God. Will you be our teacher this morning? Will you help us both in speaking and in hearing? May we do both with faith, trusting that you will indeed speak to us through your word. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm always afraid I'm going to dribble this all down my shirt front when I do that up here in front of everybody. Y'all don't know what that's like, do you? Come on up here and try one. To say that our culture's work ethic, and by work ethic I mean what shapes our view of work, what drives us to work the way we do, to say that our culture's work ethic has been on a precipitous decline for the last several years would not be too strong a statement. It may even be an understatement. To say that our work ethic has gone down the tubes. The COVID pandemic certainly did not help that at all, but the roots of a deficient work ethic are far deeper than the events of the last two or three years. It's not my purpose this morning to trace all those roots out, but simply to remind us what a a Christian work ethic looks like And to encourage us to affirm that work ethic, maybe even to repent of a lazy and different attitude toward work, and embrace a work ethic that pleases God because this touches every single facet of our lives. And before you say, maybe some of you young people or kids, before you say, I don't have a job, this doesn't apply to me, you'll see in just a moment that it applies very much to you. Okay, so let's think about this together. Imagine yourself for just a moment this morning to be a slave in first century Rome, one of many slaves in the household of a wealthy but ungodly master. And while many slaves in those days were employed as teachers or artists or accountants and they had what we might call respectable jobs, a great many were also occupied with the tasks that No one relished. You were such a slave, and it was your lot to be involved in those menial and we might even say disgusting tasks. Your days were marked by dull repetition, by boredom, by unpleasant duties. You cleaned stalls and you scrubbed floors. And then you clean some more stalls, and then guess what you do? You scrub floors. And then you change things up, and you scrub floors. And then you clean stalls. 
And every once in a while, you get to clean up from one of the lavish banquets thrown by your master. And then it's back to scrubbing floors and cleaning stalls. And then one day, a new guy shows up. You haven't seen this guy before. He's a new slave. He came from uh, who knows where. And for a while, you figure that it's just because he's new. Because he works hard, and he seems relatively cheerful, and he does his work conscientiously, and he gets even into the corners of the floors that he's scrubbing, and he doesn't grumble or complain. And you say to yourself, what is with this guy? I have never seen a guy like this. He works hard. He works with vigor. He works with diligence. And he works when the overseer of the slaves is not even anywhere around. And the longer he works with you, the more of a mystery he is to you. And so finally, one day, when your work is over and you're heading back to the slaves' quarters, you ask him, ah, Buddy? Y'all know that their name was Buddy, right? Buddy, what makes you tick? Why do you work so hard? Our master is unreasonable. He's not fair. He treats us like dirt. What is with you anyway? And this new slave turns to you with a smile on his face. And he says, I work for the best master. And you start scratching your head and wondering, this guy has lost his mind. Our master is not the best master. He says, I work for the best master. He's always with me, and he strengthens me, and he helps me, and I want to please him with all my work, and someday he'll reward him. His name is Jesus Christ, and he died to save me from the anguish of hell. It's my pleasure to serve him with all my heart, even here under this unreasonable earthly master. And your first temptation is to say that this guy has lost his mind. He's putting on a show. This can't be real. But as the days go by, and he keeps working the same way all the time, there's something about him. There's something about his humility. There's something about his simplicity, his genuineness, his consistency, his diligence, his faithfulness, his cheerfulness that makes you think this guy just could be the real deal. Maybe there is something to working for Jesus Christ. The person you ran into was a Christian slave who had taken to heart Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3.23, which we read a moment ago, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And while those words were originally addressed to slaves, there's a principle here that applies not only to all who are working for somebody else, but it applies to us all regardless of our position in life. If we have some sort of work to do for ourselves, for somebody else, for pay, not for pay. This text has something to say about how we go about that work. If this text applied to slaves who are in bondage to unreasonable masters, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 2. If it applies to them, how much more does it apply to those of us who are not in bondage to unreasonable masters and who get paid for so much of what we do? 
If those in the worst of circumstances were called upon to practice a work ethic like this, how much more should those of us in much better circumstances practice such a work ethic? I can hear some of you kids saying, give me your eyes, kids. Let me see them. I can hear some of you kids saying, yeah, you don't live in my house. That's like living in the house of that Roman master who was so unreasonable. Okay, you haven't said that out loud, but you've whispered it under your breath. Or maybe you have said it out loud. I live in an unreasonable home. No, you really don't. It's far from that. But this text has something to say even to you kids about the way you go about whatever tasks you have to do. So, boys and girls, I want you to listen while I'm talking this morning, okay? And you can talk about this with your mom and dad when you go home for lunch today. So, boys and girls, there's something here for you too. There's something here for all of us who have any kind of work to do whatsoever. It's a divine summons to wholesold labor for the glory of God, and it's really quite simple. There's something here about what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Okay, boys and girls, you got it? What we do. You got it? What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Okay? We'll come back to that at the end. Let's look first at what we do. Look at the text. It says, whatever, whatever you do. That is a broad, sweeping, all-inclusive statement. Can I exclude anything? Can I rope off any area of my duties and say this sortation does not apply to that part of my life? The text says, whatever you do. My point again is, if Paul wrote that exhortation to slaves in the first century who had it pretty hard, then this text applies to the most menial and even distasteful tax that, tasks that we are faced with. There is nothing more distasteful and menial and, and uh, to some of you than homework. Boys and girls, how many of you guys love, 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 love homework? There's, there's one oddball over here. <laughs> I'm glad you like homework, man. Most of us dread homework. But guess what? Homework is part of whatever. What about housework? How many of you, okay, this is stereotypes, I get it. How many of you wives and moms love, 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 and I, there are a few, love, love, love housework? Cleaning toilets. Can't wait to get to that thing. <laughs> Scrubbing floors, doing laundry, ironing clothes, doing dishes. Paul says, do it with all your heart, whatever. What about your regular employment? Some of you work for good masters, some of you work for so-so masters, and some of you work for... Not good masters, really. What about your regular employment? What about cleaning the basement or garage? 
That's one of my favorite tasks, not. What about the way you kids clean up your room? What about helping with other chores around the house? What about helping out your neighbor? What about working for an unreasonable boss? What about parenting your children? There are moments when that's really, really hard. And you wonder, is this ever going to change? What about reading and meditating on the Word? Do you, get the, do you get after that with all your heart? What about staying on that diet? What about, what about our corporate singing? Do you do that with all your heart? Well, that's not my job. Well, hold on. I think that text said, whatever you do, Whatever you do. What about listening to preaching? What about giving? What about witnessing to that neighbor you've been talking about for a long time? What about that apology that you genuinely owe to someone that's going to be very humbling for you? What about teachers? What about grading all those papers? What about cleaning the gutters or painting the house or cutting the grass? What about, what about your recreational activities? Don't have to prompt too many of you to get after those with all your heart, but... What, uh, th- th- that's, a, that's a relatively short list. We could go on and on and on and on. Whatever you do, there are no exclusions for especially distasteful things. There are no exclusions for difficult or dreaded things. There are no exclusions for unpleasant, painful things. There are no exclusions, right? Okay, class. There are no exclusions, Right? None. You agree with that? Do you agree that there are no exclusions? Then we got a problem. Because we don't do everything heartily, do we? We haven't even talked about what that means yet, but we're not dealing with some great mystery. This is plain. We just don't always do it. Oh, we do some things hardly. We would after some things. We pour our souls into some things, but not always into whatever. And to that extent, we have sinned. Really? Haven't we? Because the, this text says, and it's a command, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. We don't always do that. And to that extent, we sin, and that means that we have some confessing and repenting to do before this day is over. It's what we do. Whatever. In the second place, think with me about how we do it. How are we to go about whatever? The literal expression is, whatever you do, work out of your soul as for the Lord, not men. There are four things here that Paul calls for when he says, whatever you do, work out of your soul as for the Lord, not for men. He calls for diligent work. He calls for heart work. He calls for work as to the Lord, and he calls for work not for men. Diligent work, heart work. As to the Lord, not for men. Let's think about each of these for a minute. 
He calls, he calls us to engage in diligent work. When Paul says, whatever you do, that word do is the simple word for do, meaning carry out or perform. But then he, it, it almost like he repeats that word when he says, whatever you do, do your work, that's a different do. Whatever you do, just perform. Do your work is a more energetic word. It's a more active word. It means, it means, it means active labor that involves effort and exercise. It's a stronger word. It's as if Paul were saying, whatever tasks you perform, work at them. Don't be slack or careless. Expend some effort. Work at what you do. And that seems to strike a blow at lazy, sloppy, careless, indifferent, mindless work. He doesn't say, whatever you do, just make sure you get by. Whatever you do, just uh, get it done best you can, move on. Whatever. No. Paul agrees with Solomon here. Proverbs 12, 27. A slothful man does not roast his prey. He doesn't even, he's so lazy, he doesn't even fix the food that he's got to eat. But the precious, get this, the precious possession of a man is gold and silver. The precious possession of a man is real estate. The precious possession of a man is the best job on the planet. No. The precious possession of a man is diligence. Whatever you do, work at it. He's calling for diligence in our labor. Secondly, he's calling for heart work. Literally, do your work out of your soul. We don't need to beat around the bush here. Put your heart into your work, okay? You understand what that means. Even your mundane, tedious, routine tasks, do them with heart. Do them with interest, with diligence, with care, with thoughtfulness, with zeal. Do them with heart. Don't be careless, listless, indifferent, half-hearted, lazy, detached, disinterested, complaining, or grumbling. We know way too much about that list of things, don't we? Now, obviously, not all jobs require the same amount of sweat. True? Not all jobs require the same amount of mental sweat or physical sweat. They don't require the same amount of attention to detail, the same amount of concentration. This is important. Working heartily, hear me, working heartily doesn't mean that you're always going full tilt. It doesn't mean that you're always working up a sweat. It doesn't mean that at the end of every day you should be in exhaustion. That's not his point. It simply means that you work with a care, with a diligence, with a thoughtfulness, with an interest with a heart that is appropriate to the task. You're not going to write, it's not been that long ago since we had graduations back in May, you're not going to write thank you notes for graduation gifts with the same effort that you do in three or four months when you got to shovel the driveway and get all the snow out of the way, okay? Those are two entirely different things. 
but you bring to those things a heart that is appropriate to the task. And you do it, whether it's writing a thank, for note, thank you note or shoveling snow. You do it with all your heart. You do it out of your soul. I can't imagine that all those slaves loved everything about their work. And Paul was familiar with that. But he tells them, do it with heart. Bring your heart with you to whatever that task may be. Think for a moment about the Lord Jesus. And how do you think Jesus went about his tasks as a boy growing up. We need to spend a little more time thinking about what Jesus was like as a boy. That's not the focus of the New Testament, okay? The focus is his, his ministry, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. But before he ever got to that point, he was a boy, a real boy, growing up in a real home with a mom and a dad, and his dad ran a carpenter shop. Think of the Lord Jesus. Whatever he did, he did it with heart. When he worked in Joseph's carpenter shop, can you imagine him sweeping the floor and skipping the corners? I can't. I, really? No. Can you imagine him only half listening to Joseph's instructions? Whatever you do, do with all your heart. <laughs> I'm, I'm so bad at this. Listen, listen with all your heart. I'm rebuked by that. Can you imagine Jesus only half listening to Joseph's instructions? Can you imagine him doing chores around the house with an attitude? Can you imagine him pouting on his way to herd the sheep and the goats in for the night? Can you imagine him whining? about the homework assignment he got from the synagogue that day. No. As a man, can you imagine Jesus listening to sinners with anything less than all of his heart? Wait a minute, what did you say? What was wrong with that? What? I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Can you imagine Jesus responding that way? Can you imagine him teaching him the hillsides with indifference? Can you imagine him when he, on those occasions where the New Testament tells us that Jesus went off by himself alone to pray? And how many times did crowds find him? And here they come again. And Jesus sees them coming. Can you imagine him groaning, i got to do this again? Man, I wish they'd leave me alone. No. Can you imagine him grumbling and complaining under false accusations, the ridicule, the scorn, and the taunts? Can you imagine him whining? over having to carry his own cross. Can you imagine him shedding his blood grudgingly 
Of course you can't. Because whatever he did, he did with all of his heart as unto God his Father in heaven. He said, I delight to do thy will. And God's will for him involves some very distasteful, unpleasant, humbling things. But he gave himself to them with all of his heart. Whatever he did, he brought his heart with him to that task. And he gave the whole thing, all the time. Do you bring your heart with you when you come to whatever it is you have to do? And it's not, it's not as though we're talking here about good, better, or best. We're talking about right and wrong. You either bring your heart with you to that task or you don't. And if you want to bring a little bit of it, have you brought your heart? If you want to bring 30%, have you brought your whole, have you done it out of your soul? We're talking about sinful behavior and righteous behavior. We're talking about diligent heart work that God requires of us. And anything short of that is sin. But it's just at this point that there's great reason for encouragement for us. Jesus is not only our example of diligent heart work, but he's also our savior from the sin of laziness and indifference. Because he gave himself with all of his heart to the work of saving sinners, there is real forgiveness for us from the guilt of laziness and half-hearted work. And not only is there forgiveness, there is grace and strength to enable us to work with diligence and heart. Philippians 4.13 <clears throat> I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 is not just for nice little plaques to put up on your wall. It is real help for real sinners who have been saved by grace and are striving to please the Lord in whatever they do. We are not alone in this fight against laziness and indifference. You don't have to bring all your... You don't have, you don't have to try and rustle up enough of your own resources and strength to bring all your heart to whatever you do because Jesus is there to help you bring all your heart to whatever you do you are not in this alone thirdly we do diligent work we do heart work thirdly we do it as to the Lord work like your only boss or supervisor is the Lord Jesus himself Work like he'll be coming around to inspect your job when you're finished. Work like he himself is right there with you because guess what? He is. All the time. What a difference that will make, even in the little things. Proverbs 16, 11 says, A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. He cares about the littlest details. How would he want you? To do this job. What would the Lord Jesus say about the way you're doing that task? Work like you're working for Him because you are. If you name the name of Christ, whatever you're doing, you're doing it for Him. Work like it. Would He be pleased with your work ethic? Would He be pleased with your spirit and your attitude? I get it. I understand. You desperately want to please your teacher with this project or that report, and you want your classmates to be impressed, and you desperately want a good grade on your project so you can get that final grade up to an A. I get that, and that's not wrong. You hear me? That's not wrong. 
But if that's the only thing that drives you, if that's all you live for, then, then you've missed it. There's a higher motive. There's a better reason to do your best. You do it as for the Lord. Work like He's there with you all the time. Because He is. And then fourth, our work is to be not for men. The kind of work we're to render is not to be the kind that is primarily driven by what men will think. And yet, isn't that the very thing that often drives us in our work? Listen to Paul's expression in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now please understand here, there is a legitimate place for wanting your parents or your teacher or your supervisor or your boss to be pleased with your work. Okay? Do you all hear me say that? There's a legitimate place for one of your parents, your teacher, your boss, your supervisor to be pleased with your work. You want to do well for them. And that's as it should be. But almost all of us have had the experience of just piddling around with some job until the teacher comes into the room, the supervisor walks by, a parent walks into the room, and what happens? It's like we shift into high gear. We get after it. We've all had that experience, you know? It's just kind of, so-so. Oh, yes. When somebody walks in. Or we've had this experience. We've been quietly working away at a job or a task or a project or whatever, hoping that someone will notice our diligence and the care with which we've labored. The last guy that did a job was a lazy bum. I'm going to show him how this is really done. And, and we're hoping that somebody... When, it, when it's all done, somebody will ask, who did such a good job with this? Ah, it's me. And the point is not that it's wrong to be noticed or complimented on a job well done. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is, what is driving you to do a good job? What's in your mind when you do your work with excellence? It's really easy to give more weight to the eyes of men than the eyes of God. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He's not saying don't practice your righteousness in front of anybody else. That would be, that would be silly. But don't do it for the notice of men. If you do... Then you get their notice, and that's the end of the discussion. That's, that's all there is. God does not reward that kind of labor. You forfeit His blessing if you give greater heed to the eyes of men than to the eye of God. 
So when Paul addresses the question of how we're to labor in whatever task is before us, he calls us to diligent work, he calls us to heart work, he calls us to work as to the Lord, and he calls us to work not primarily for men. Now in the last place, why we do it. What we do is whatever. How we do it is with heart as unto, and, and unto the Lord. But now why we do it? We've hinted at this already, but this brings us to the critical issue of our motives. Why should we labor with heart? Why should we put our heart into our work, whatever it may be? Paul gives us two reasons. The first reason is there are consequences for our work. We should put our heart into it. We should diligently labor at whatever we do because there are consequences to our work. Verses 24 and 25 of Colossians 3, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he's done, and that with our partiality. Slaves who worked hard were not always rewarded for their diligent labor. They had unreasonable masters. So Paul says, your reward is coming. It's coming from God. Have an eye to that. And likewise, slaves who just got by were not always held accountable. Their day of reckoning was coming as well. Now let me be clear. At this point, Paul was not talking about heaven for those who work hard and hell for those who don't. That's not the context. The context here is Paul's writing to Christian slaves. He's been writing to those who've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1. He's writing to those who've been chosen of God, Colossians 3.12. He's talking to Christian slaves and he's talking about gaining or forfeiting the blessing of God by the way they go about their labors. There are consequences to our work. If you go about your deed in order to be seen by men, then that's it. That's all you get. God takes no notice of it. But if, on the other hand, you labor for God and for His glory, then He does take notice, and your blessing will come from Him, whether you are noticed by men or not. That is Paul's point here. What ought to drive us to diligent labor in whatever we find to do is this. The blessing of God will come for such labor. It may be tangible. It may be non-tangible. It may come today. It will surely come in the day of judgment. But we are so, we are so conditioned for immediate gratification. Listen, gratification is coming. And it's going to come when we see the face of Jesus. Labor to that end. Be satisfied with that, even if it's on down the road. It will come. And how we ought to treasure the blessing of God over the mere notice of men. By the same token, we forfeit the blessing of God for ill-motivated labor. That ought to carry weight with us. Does it matter to you? If you're going about your work in a way that will withhold the blessing of God from you? Are you satisfied only with the approval of men? That's like being satisfied with a crumb when you could have a feast. 
being satisfied just with the approval of men and forfeiting the approval of God. That's like, that's like quenching your thirst with a drop of tepid, muddy water when you could have a freely flowing fountain of fresh, clean, cool mountain spring water. Who would trade that for a drop of muddy, dirty water? But that's what we do. When we labor just to the eyes of men. But the second motive Paul sets before us is an already familiar theme. In verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He comes back to this theme, the eye of God is upon you. Why? This is motive. Why should we labor with heart? Why should we put soul into our work? Because we're working for Christ. He's our master. He's present in all of our labor, and yet how little weight we give to this and how much weight we give to the eyes of men. Listen to an old Puritan. They knew something about work and work ethic. Listen to an old Puritan commenting on the parallel passage in Ephesians 6. He said, I am persuaded the greatest failures in either master or servant have their spring here. A secret root of atheism, disbelief of God's eye and observation. Pause the quote. In so many ways, we're practical atheists, aren't we? We act like God doesn't exist. Sometimes we go about our work like God doesn't exist. He does in His eye upon you. And that ought to drive us. And then he says, what truth in all the Bible is more clear than this and yet what almost less believed? Oh, what do men make of God? How do they rob Him of His glory and themselves of the truest motives of fidelity, activity, and cheerfulness? If we don't labor consciously that God's eye is upon us. Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and He watches all His paths. And it's not, okay, we, we talk a lot about the eye of God being upon us. It's not... God's eye is not upon us like, like an ogre of a unreasonable master. It's the eye of our loving, gracious, patient, merciful, forgiving, helping, sustaining, strengthening Father who is in heaven. That's the eye that's on us. How we need to develop more and more a sense of that. We're so governed by what we can actually see. Labor then. Labor then to develop more of a sense of the presence of Christ. Pray for it. For a conscious awareness of it. Remind yourself of it daily, even hourly. And then give yourself to hearty, diligent, Christ-pleasing labor in whatever you do. Can I say a word to moms and dads? Are you setting a good example of this kind of labor for your children? Do your children know what I'm talking about this morning? Because they see it in you. This is not foreign to them. Because they've seen it. They've seen it in their mom. They've seen it in their dad.
A word to boys and girls and young people. Are you putting this into practice in your schoolwork, your homework, your help around the house, your yard work, your part-time job, so that when you grow up, a God-honoring work ethic will already be a part of who you are. Kids, do you work out of your heart as for God? And not just for the popsicle that you're going to get when it's done. My last word. We've been addressing Christians and the issue of how a true Christian goes about his his or her labor. We've not addressed the issue of how you become a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you ought to work your tail off too. But that's not how you become a Christian. It's not by giving yourself the hearty labor about anything that nobody can work their way to heaven with all of his heart. And he finished it. And it's done. And it's good for every sinner who cries out in faith to Jesus. I need the work you have done because I can't do that. So if you're not a Christian this morning, your great concern is not how you work. It's whether or not you'll trust Christ alone to save you. And when you do, you'll find the greatest of all reasons to put your heart into your work, and you'll find Jesus to be the best master of all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you worked redemption for sinners like us with all of your heart. You left nothing undone. You left no corner of God's law disobeyed. You kept it all. You did the whole thing. You did it all for us. You put everything into the work of redemption. Thank you for such a a certain, sure, saving work. And for those here this morning who are not Christians, will you draw them to yourself? Will you become their best master? And help us who know and love and trust you. Help us to work at whatever you call us to do with all of our hearts as unto you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.